This is The Defrag, I'm Christopher Lawson. Bushfires are a key part of living in certain areas of the world. California often experiences wildfires during the summer months. Canada can experience significant fire events. And here in Australia, where I'm based, large bushfires are a way of life during our summer months. A mass evacuation this morning along Australia's southeastern coast, with bushfires looming and extreme danger ahead. The smoke just billowing out for the number of fires burning along, particularly the eastern side of the country. It's been labelled the worst fire season ever recorded. The bushfires in the 2019-2020 season, just before the pandemic hit, were some of the worst ever. 17 million hectares of land went up in flames, and over 1 billion mammals, birds and reptiles are estimated to have died. While these fires are just a way of life for a country like Australia, we do our very best to try and manage the risk. One popular method of fire control is to conduct regular controlled burns ahead of a fire season. The idea is to try and reduce the fuel load, Less fuel means less chance of a major fire event. But fire plays an important role in the ecosystems of our forests. So is it time that we rethink our approach to managing the risk from bushfires? What I've wanted to do is to understand what it is that, uh, that makes a bushfire uncontrollable or makes a landscape more flammable or a, you know, an area or a forest um, more or less flammable, so that we can look at different, um, firstly, advantages that we can use when we're fighting fires, uh, areas where we would expect that flames are small enough that we can more aggressively control fires. This is Phil Zilstra, an adjunct associate professor at Curtin University and a research fellow at the University of New South Wales. So when I talk about aggressive control, I mean... Rather than lighting backburns, which uh, are risky, they'll often escape, they can extend the fire, but um, sometimes that's all the only tool that's left. Um, aggressive firefighting means that you can actually get in there with a hose or with a rake hoe and, and physically put the fire front out. And you can only do that if the flames are small. So, uh, yeah, that was, that was what sparked interest for me. How do we manage forests and... Um, how do we interact with them and how do they naturally change themselves to produce areas that are um, places where we can fight fires aggressively or, or alternatively places that are going to be big risks to us. What role does fire play in the health of our forests? Like any sort of disturbance, it, it kind of resets um, the clock for a lot of different species. Um, you can you can look at analogies, I suppose, in just human society. When when something goes wrong, we get a you know a COVID virus come through or something like that. It it changes the whole environment for us. There are winners and losers each time. There are um, businesses that will fail because of it, and then there'll be a whole lot of new enterprises that sort of spring up as a result. And um, it's the same for any sort of disturbance in a natural community. There are losers and winners that can come out of that. So you will often see a big change in species composition in a forest. Um, following a fire, you'll get a big flush of growth. And species that may have been uncommon 
for a while will suddenly become common again and we call these colonizer species and um, eventually they will they'll disappear they'll often um, be fairly short-lived and then you get other species come in and, and take over from that and that's a process called succession in your uh, research, you talk about um, the sort of idea of hazard reduction burns. Um, we They're quite common around Australia. We often see, you know, planned burns uh, all over the place, you know, at sort of the start of the season and at the end of the season. Um, what, what impact do these burns have on, uh, you know, the, the potential for fire to occur in, uh, in our forests? Yeah, so um, planned burning... It's got a long history. It wasn't always done for managing fuels. People have used fire um, all throughout history. A lot of the the British migrants to Australia had come from a background of using fire to clear forests to create grazing land. And so they, they came to the country and, and burnt great swathes of, of forest there to, to, to clear it and to create the grazing country not really knowing anything about the response of that. Hazard reduction burning is a is a quite a recent idea. People are, are burning forests with the idea that if you if you remove the plants and the in particular the leaf litter on the ground, um, then you prevent another fire coming through. And and we can see that straight after a fire, uh, where you've just got a, a black soil and, and no plants and nothing on the ground. Um, it's very hard for a fire to come through that area. It's very unlikely. And that effect will last for a few years. We found in our study that it lasts um, to some extent for about five to seven years. And Phil says that after that five to seven years, things seem to change quite a lot. So there's a certain amount of, of water and light and nutrition in the soil that can support a certain, no, a certain biomass of plants. And so when you remove some, you've created a vacancy and more will come back. So there's a big flush of growth. The fire also uh, germinates a lot of seeds, stimulates the germination, and you get um, uh, what we call epicormic sprouting or basal sprouting from other plants there. So what ends up happening is, is a, a massive new growth that mostly is growing up from the ground, um, from seeds. And... That's a really important point because if it's close to the ground, then it's close to small flames and it's much more likely to ignite. So if we're getting a lot of new growth, that's a lot of new fuel for a bushfire. But that's not the whole story because it turns out that our natural ecosystem has a way of dealing with this all on its own. And that's coming up after this short break. If you're enjoying this episode of The Defrag and you want to support the work that we're doing, head on over to our website, thedefrag.com and become a Defrag member. You can get an ad-free version of the podcast, a sticker pack, a regular newsletter and discounts to our merch. Plus, there's a number of other perks depending on your membership level. 
Becoming a member is really the best way to support the show. It empowers us to produce independent journalism and gives you the best of the podcast without all the noise. So head on over to our website, thedefrag.com and become a member today. Bushfires are a way of life for many people around the world. They are incredibly valuable to our ecosystem. And some plants like the eucalyptus actually rely on fire to unlock their seeds to allow more eucalyptus trees to grow. Many of us love to live around the natural habitat and with that comes the risk of a fire. We often minimize that risk by conducting hazard reduction burns. And while these work for a small period of time, they actually encourage growth on the forest floor. But it turns out that if we can let a forest grow, the ecosystem deals with this risk all on its own. The long-term effect is that the the shorter ones, the shrubs and those close to the ground, tend to naturally self-thin. So an old forest becomes very open underneath and um, easy to walk through. And also that means the vegetation there, the, the foliage that could be fuel, is now often above your head and there's a big gap from the leaf litter on the ground to that that foliage and it varies between forests of course but but this is a broad trend and certainly what we found in southwestern Australia. Once those plants are tall enough that they're out of reach of the flames um, they stop being fueled they're only fuel if they burn. Once they're out of reach of the flames they become what we call overstory shelter where they actually shade the ground, keep things, um, keep things moist, but they also, when a fire is burning through that leaf litter, those plants over your head are slowing the wind down. And the wind is the biggest thing that drives a fire. So plants close to the ground, early on after fire, are fuel. And those same plants later on, um, given enough time, become overstory shelter. And in effect, you could say they're on our side there slowing the fire down. Now this thinning out of the forest floor doesn't happen overnight. In fact, it takes around 50 years, give or take. But once it does occur, the flammability of the forest is reduced by up to seven times. That means an old forest is seven times less likely to have a fire. I suppose there's three time spans you can look at. Um, there's a there's the very short term time span, which is the one that has been looked at historically, where you have uh, four to you know, five to seven years of reduced fire risk or, or relatively low fire risk, and then you have four to five decades of um, of greatly increased fire risk. In, in the southwest, it will vary depending on the type of forest and the growth rates there. But but you have a long period of regrowth for the forest to kind of, um, I suppose, rebuild itself to the to what it was before the fire came. And then eventually you have this self-thinned, mature forest that is. Um, we found in the southwest it was seven times less likely to carry a bushfire than the the younger forest that was still still in the process of thinning. Um, so what does, what does this teach us about how we should be managing bushfire risk? 
I suppose it, it challenges our our self-importance, where we we feel like we need to, you know, thank goodness the forests have got us to save them from themselves, you know, and come in and burn them and, and keep their keep their fuels low, you know. What it tells us for for now is that we need to probably see ourselves a little bit less as the managers and start looking at ways to coexist with these natural processes and that means allowing areas to age where they can and it also means um, using what resources we've got to try and help that process and undo some of the damage that we've done because we've put so much of the landscape into a state of flammable regrowth and we've also created climate warming so we need to use resources like rapid attack of fires, rapid detection. Um, when I worked in firefighting, I was part of what we call raft teams, remote area fire train teams, where they'd lower us by helicopter into um, remote lightning strikes, and and you know with a, a chainsaw and a rake we'd we'd put the the lightning strike fire out and and contain it while it was really small. We need to really invest in growing those sorts of capabilities and just the capacity to catch those fires while they're small and also to understand exactly how these old forests change fire behaviour so that we can use it to best advantage. Also making news today, Yuga Labs, the company behind the Bored Apes NFT project, has raised $450 million in funding at a $4 billion valuation. This is the first funding round from the company. Bored Apes are one of the most popular NFT projects and have a current floor price of just over $300,000 US dollars. YouTube is now going to stream ad-supported television shows. Users in the United States will have access to over 4,000 episodes of popular shows like Hell's Kitchen or Heartland. There are also now more than 1,500 movies that can be watched with ads. The move places YouTube in direct competition with other streaming television services. And Microsoft has confirmed that it has been the victim of a hack. The hacking group known as Lapsus this week claimed to have hacked Microsoft, sharing partial source code from Bing and Cortana. In a post on their security blog, Microsoft says that their team has been tracking a large-scale social engineering campaign. Microsoft says that the hackers don't seem to cover their tracks, and that the hackers have been trying to gather knowledge about Microsoft's business operations. Microsoft says that only a single account had been compromised and that no customer code or data was involved in the observed activities. Defrag is a production of Lawson Media. The show today was produced and hosted by me, Christopher Lawson. 
If you're enjoying the series and the podcast app that you're using allows it, I encourage you to leave us a rating or review. It lets other people know that the show is valuable to listen to. That's all the news I've got today. I'll be back with more tomorrow.